In the vast expanse of Acme, Washington, a town so small that 243 souls within its bounds could recount each other's histories like well-thumbed pages of a communal diary, a mystery would unfold that would echo through the forests and fields for 30 years. Mandy Stavok, a name now synonymous with both tragedy and the relentless pursuit of justice, vanished into the quiet whispers of the Pacific Northwest, leaving behind a community wrapped in heartache and a case that would challenge the very limits of forensic science. Three decades would pass, marked by the changing seasons and the unwavering hope of a family seeking closure, before finally the scales of justice would find their balance. Today, let's journey back to Acme, not just to a place, but to a time that has become etched into the collective memory of its residents. Together today, we'll traverse the poignant story of a town united by loss and the painstaking path to an answer that seemed as elusive as the mountain mist. So brace yourself for a tale where patience is measured in years, and resolution comes with the bittersweet tang of a truth long awaited. The story of Mandy Stavok and the case that took three decades to solve begins right now with a single step into the past and a giant leap into the heart of perseverance and of hope. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. This one's all about Mandy Stavik, the case that took 30 years to solve. I love these ones, right? It's like, I don't know what, what this is about, but I like these ones where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he thought he got away with it. And then they ran his DNA 30 years later because DNA became a thing. Your criminals back in the day were just like leaving their DNA everywhere. And it's like, yeah, now you're going to prison forever, even though you're a 90 year old man. I love it. It's like when there's, you know, there's some Nazi and they're like, oh yeah, we found out that you're actually like killing people. And they're like, I'm 90 years old. And it's like, guess where you're going? Prison. <laughs> I love that. Shit. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because some crimes we don't want to forget about. It's like, look, I, statute of limitations is all well and good. Like, you don't want people like having crimes hang over them for their whole lives if they're like, you know, not horrific crimes. Like words that I'm going to say that don't belong this early in a YouTube video. Like G aside and Mararada. <laughs> This is how we have to do these these days. Thank you, YouTube. Love you. Thank you to Harrison for writing it. The format of the show, I've never read it before. Let's jump in. Hello, Simon. It's great to be back so soon after my first script. Well, you might be back, Harrison. I have no idea what order these episodes go out in. This one isn't as rough as the previous one, but it's still a story and a half with enough police work to satisfy even you. Yes. That's what I most love about true crime, where it's like the police come along and they're like, and guess what? We're actually competent and we're going to nail someone. Yes. This is a story over three decades that luckily has a happy ending for the family of our victim. <laughs> Happy ending. It's like you know what? I'd rather not have, not be the. I'd rather not be the victim, the family of a victim at all. I'd rather that the success of the police is that there wasn't any crime in the first place. The town. Like I did last time, I want to describe Acme, Washington. Yes, I'm in Acme, like the one from the Looney Tunes cartoon. Did those cross the ponds? Of course they did. Isn't it? It's like I don't know. I can't name one now, but definitely. Were the Animaniacs Acme? There was lots of, there was lots of, I mean, it's not like, I'm confusing that with the company that makes them, aren't I? <laughs> but yes, I'm familiar. Situated in Whatcom County, the town covers a massive area spanning 9.8 square miles, that's 25.4 square kilometers. Within the border, you can find a general store, a post office, a gas station, a single diner, an elementary school, and two churches. All of those places are enjoyed by a whopping 243 residents. Can you really run a post office and a petrol station and a store off 243 people? That doesn't seem like a lot of people. Like, I always imagine 
in my mind. Like 500 people is the number of people I can easily visualize because that's how many people went to my school when I was a kid and would all sit in like assembly and there'd be about, or it was like 450. And that's quite a lot of people, but it's not that many. And that was just at a school. Half that many in a town supporting like a store and all of this stuff, really? Essentially, everyone in Agni knew one another, having grown up together and frequented the same places. It is then connected to Whatcom County, which is about a quarter of a million residents. Here's an interesting tidbit. This region is responsible for 60% of America's annual raspberry crop. Fascinating. I love raspberries, though. When I was a kid, we had this like big old garden, and there was like a vegetable area of the garden, like this whole thing where my parents had like planted loads of vegetables and stuff. And I'd just go in there, and we had this big raspberry cage. It was like so the birds didn't get in and eat the raspberries. And I'd go into the raspberry cage, and there were just thousands of raspberries, and I'd just feast on all the raspberries. And I also really loved parsley. There were lots of other parsley plants, and I used to eat the parsley and the raspberries. I guess the raspberries is a bit normal. Eating just parsley is a bit weird, isn't it? Believe it or not, this detail, what detail? Oh, the raspberry stuff. Oh, that actually is relevant? I thought it was just a fun fact. Okay. Mandy Stavick. Born on the 13th of January 1971 in Bellingham, Washington. I know somebody from Bellingham. Matty Stavick lived with her parents, Cliff and Mary Stavick, as well as her siblings, Jill, Molly, and Brent. Soon after Mandy's birth, they would move to Alaska. Later on, her family would expand to include a younger brother, Lee, and a stepbrother, Spencer, from her father's second marriage. After her parents' divorce, Mandy, along with her mother, relocated from Alaska to Acme. Mandy had a deep passion for outdoor activities like running, biking, and cheerleading. Cheerleading? Isn't that an indoor activity? In mo- I, like, in the UK, we don't have cheerleaders. That's not a thing. Um, I always thought it was quite a strange part of American culture. Uh, but isn't that an indoor thing? I always see it in gyms with big posters that say, like, Go Tigers or something. Is that how America actually is, or is that just in movies? She was often found running the same route during her time at Mount Baker High School. In 1989, at the age of 18, she began her first year at Central Washington University. On Friday, the 24th of November 1989, during Thanksgiving vacation, Mandy was back in Acme and ventured out for a run, accompanied by her loyal German shepherd, Kyra, going down her usual route. On her way back, a delivery man named David Craker spotted Mandy not far from her home. A short while later, Mandy's brother, Lee, caught sight of her as she jogged past his friend's house. She was now less than a mile away from home. Then Kyra, her dog, appeared alone at her front door, raising alarm bells. Mary and the rest of the family immediately contacted Rick Zender, Mandy's off-again, on-again boyfriends, and their friends, hoping that someone had information about her whereabouts. Mandy was reported missing, prompting the entire town to mobilize into a search effort. For three agonizing days, the town held on to hope. Unfortunately, that hope was shattered when her body was discovered face down in a river. Harrison... You said this one was going to be light. There's already the murder of an 18-year-old girl. Why? I don't know, Simon. Maybe it's because you chose to do a true crime show. Maybe that's why there's murder. Do you not re- did you not realize what you were getting into, Simon? She was unclothed except for her socks and shoes, and there were signs of sexual assault. It was determined that she had drowned. Initial Investigation on November the 27th, the police search team, led by Detective Ron Peterson, made the discovery of Mandy's body. According to Peterson, while navigating the river, the team turned a corner into a small, shallow side channel and spotted something pink. These were her running shoes, partially submerged in the riverbed. As they approached, the rest of her body came into view, lying face down. They observed matted grass and trampled bushes, but found no signs of a struggle in the water. In a later interview, Peterson, himself a father, recalled whispering softly, I got you, as he carefully lifted her out of the water. While examining the crime scene, Peterson noticed scratches on Mandy's. I'm so glad I'm not a policeman. Like, 
I, you know, or like a detective or doing anything that is slightly grim. I'm so glad I just get to sit in my warm office and talk about this stuff rather than actually going out there because this would be heartbreaking. Like, and I'm sure you get used to it or whatever, or maybe you don't, but just to go out there and be like, oh yeah, I'm fishing someone's kid out of a river. That's f- Peterson noticed scratches on Mandy's body, leading them to realize that she had attempted to escape, likely running through the nearby raspberry bushes. This being 1989, DNA evidence was still relatively new at the time, but Peterson had received recent training from the, D- from the FBI in various techniques for collecting DNA evidence, so he was extremely careful. As they conducted DNA testing, the investigators also delved into the possibility that Mandy had been stalked. David Craig had provided a lead, mentioning that it observed a maintenance truck with a large model on top of it. Imagine the way ice cream trucks look with the cone on the top. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that seems very American. Like, what's that? It's a maintenance trial. Why is there a giant spanner on trial? I'll just to let people know. <laughs> just let people know because they, they can't read. Inside the truck, there were two individuals that he said looked to be in their 30s. Another man had been spotted in the vicinity of Mandy's last known location, leading the police to create a composite sketch. Mandy's boyfriend, Rick, underwent interrogation but fully cooperated and was soon ruled out as a suspect. Additionally, saliva swabs were taken from over 30 local men chosen due to their proximity to the crime scene, yet none of them yielded a match either. Wow, this is like 1989? Wasn't running DNA... 1989? Yeah, wasn't running DNA like super a long process? Because they had to like... I mean, nowadays, it's just like you pay a hundred bucks or it's probably even cheaper now. You send it off to like 23andMe and they're like, there you go, there's your DNA. And you're like, whoa, okay. But back in the day, it was much more expensive, right? Here, the initial investigation reached a standstill as the case went cold for three decades with no prospects of closure or resolution on the horizon. However, during her lifetime, Mandy Stavick had left an indelible mark on her community. And as you'll soon discover, her memory was never truly forgotten. A cold case turns hot. Even three decades later, the Tyner community still carried the weight of their loss. In June of 2013, Heather Backstrom and Merrily Anderson, along with several other mothers, were at the water park with their children. During their conversation, the topic of the Mandy Stavick case arose. Despite their limited acquaintance, Merrily made a bold assertion. She claimed to know the identity of the murderer, Timothy Bass. What have you been up to, Merrily? It's like, oh no, well I knew. I knew this whole time it was old Timmy boy. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you say something, Merrily? It's now many, many years later. Heather, taken aback, revealed that she'd also harbored suspicions about Bass's involvement. Both of them had personal experiences with Bass that had fueled their theories. <laughs> what? Merrily's like, yeah, you are, I know it was Tim. And uh, what's her name? Heather's like, yeah, 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 it was definitely Tim. That's sketchy. In 1989, when Heather was just 15 years old and Bass was 22, they found themselves seated next to each other in a truck with a group of friends after a softball game. Bass engaged Heather in conversation, complimenting her on her beautiful eyes, and unsettlingly began running a pen along her knees. Bro, you're 22 and she's 15? What what are you up to? This is weird anyway if you were just both adults or both 15-year-olds sitting on a bus and you just start running a pen along her legs. That's weird anyway. But you're 22, my dude, she is 15. What are you thinking? Which left her feeling nervous and uncomfortable. Yes, as it might. Merrily, the other woman, had a connection to Bass through her husband. In 1991, during a night when she was home alone with her son, Bass appeared at their doorstep. He asked to use their phone to call his wife. He claimed that he'd been hunting all day and his wife would be concerned if he didn't check in. However, when he dialed a number, Merrily heard a disconnected tone and suspected that it intentionally dialed the wrong number. Bass then confessed his love for her and made an inappropriate advance. Bass. Bass, you weirdo. I can understand why people think, yeah, it's Bass. <laughs> Weird Timmy. Understandably alarmed, she demanded that he leave, threatening to call the police when he refused. Bro. 
No, I'm not leaving. I love you. It's like I'm going to call the police. You've been rejected. It's time to go. Move on with your life. Upon sharing their unsettling stories, Heather and Merrily made the decision to contact the police and express their suspicions regarding Timothy Bass. Guys, <laughs> you're a little bit late. <laughs> To bolster their hunch with some tangible evidence, it was discovered the Bass had resided just a few houses down from Mandy's home, and the two families were acquainted. Why wasn't he swabbed? With both Bass and Mandy having attended the school, why didn't they swab Weird Timmy? At the time of her murder, Bass was 22 years old. Surprisingly, despite the close physical and personal proximity, Bass, his brother Tom, and his father Bud were never asked to provide DNA samples as part of the investigation. Why? A bit about Tim Bass. Back in the present, of 2013 that is, police zeroed in on Bass, looking at his background with help from his younger brother Tom. Growing up, the brothers were competitive but close. However, Bass's teenage years marked a turning point, with social interactions becoming increasingly unnatural for him. Tom remembered a disturbing incident when his brother, reeling from a breakup, threatened to end his life with a pistol in hand, eventually firing the gun into the air. Oh my lord. This signaled a shift in his demeanor marked by disdain and disrespect towards women. Robin, Tom's wife, corroborated this change, describing Bass's belief in women's inferiority. Bass... <laughs> dude, you took that rejection a little bit hard, didn't you, my dude? Bass married young, just six weeks after Mandy's murder, moving away from the area. Naturally, his marriage to Gina Malone was far from a fairy tale. Yeah, Gina, why did you marry this douchebag? Gina endured nearly 30 years of controlling an emotionally abusive behavior. Look, I don't mean to blame Gina. I can hear people be like, don't blame Gina. Don't blame Gina. But it's also like, don't marry a douchebag. I'm sure there's more to it. She obviously did like, you know what I'm looking for? A douchebag. I'm sorry, Gina, I take it all back. Feeling like a servant and enduring countless demands. Gina tried to leave, even obtaining a restraining order and starting divorce proceedings. However, Bass's constant threats to take their children away left her frightened and trapped. Well, and now we're introduced to the broken system, aren't we? That's super up. Like, surely you just go to court. And I realize that this isn't the fantastic ideal world that we live in. But you'd be like, yo, my husband's threatening me. And uh, he's and he wants to take away the kids. Can you tell him that he can't? And the court will be like, yeah, of course. The kids are now yours. And that guy, we're going to keep a really close eye on him. We're going to put them on a secret list of people to watch. And we're going to swab his mouth <laughs> for DNA. While detectives believed he was their killer, they continued to investigate other potential suspects to ensure they were on the right path. Second Investigation when the police sought to speak with him, he was still married to Gina and they had three children together and they were residing in Everson. Bass was employed as a delivery man for a commercial bakery. Mm. <laughs> if I was a delivery man for a commercial bakery, the amount of sh that I would snack on would be insane. I'm a huge bakery person. Like, and this is a recent revelation in my life. I go to the bakery often and I buy all sorts of weird bread and sandwiches and like cakes and stuff. I just love bakery. Fascinating tangent, Simon. Thank you. Police visited Bass's home to engage in conversation with him. However, when they inquired about Mandy, he initially seemed unfamiliar with the case, which struck the officers as peculiar since everyone in Acme was aware of Mandy's name and the crime. It'd be like, <laughs> if something like this, a tiny town, there's 250 people and you don't know about the murder of the 18-year-olds? Of course you do. It'd be like, yo, 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 9-11. No, never heard of it. Never heard of 9-11. What are you talking about? You'd be like, whoa, you sound a little bit guilty there, mate, don't you? I wonder how many people don't know about 9-11. Because that's a long time ago now. And I and I mean, like, Americans. I bet there's plenty of teenagers who'd be like, yeah, 9-11, wasn't that some, like, thing with the, the thing? <laughs> God, that's crazy, isn't it? That was, like, the biggest news event of my childhood, for sure. I remember, like, I was in detention. 
because I didn't have my PE kit. And like the teachers were on like a laptop at the front or whatever. And they were like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? And so we were like gathered around this laptop, which had like the news on it. And it was like, holy shit. as a kid, I didn't really understand the magnitude of it until like you get home and all of the TV programs have just been interrupted by the news. And you're like, oh, I've never seen this before, so it must be a big deal. Subsequently, the police visited his workplace and conversed with his manager, Kim Wagner. However, the employers declined consent for the police to access his details and delivery route without a subpoena. Totally not unreasonable. At the time, Kim was unaware that the police were investigating Mandy's murder. Several, it doesn't matter. It's totally fine to refuse the police information if they don't have a subpoena. You don't have to do that. You don't know what's going on. Um, even if you, th like, you don't know what's going on. Like, especially that, it's like she doesn't know what they're investigating. They could be investigating her. Even if she's got nothing to hide, it's like they could be thinking you're guilty of something. You can absolutely refuse, unless they have a subpoena, and also get a lawyer. Like, even if you're fully innocent, just get a lawyer, just to be safe. Several years later, upon learning the nature of the investigation, Kim reconnected with police, promising to find something Bass had used from which they could potentially obtain his DNA. However, they had to decline her offer as they couldn't ask a civilian to collect evidence. Well, just come to the office and collect it. Nonetheless, they could accept it if it was brought to them. Kim, determined to help, took matters into her own hands. Wait, what? Oh, okay, so they just can't ask her to collect evidence. So they're like, well, look, Kim, we can't ask you to collect evidence, but if you happen to come in with it, then that'd be great, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be wonderful. But we can't ask you to do that, but if you did. <laughs> I 100% volunteered to do it, she stated. The reason I wanted to know was I'm a mum now. If something happened to my daughter, I'd want someone to help me. And the thought of her mum never having an answer of who did that to her daughter, if I could help her find that piece. I wanted to do it. Kim kept a close eye on Bass. When the bakery acquired a water cooler, she observed him drinking from one of the plastic cups and then disposing of it. She looked into the garbage, saw his cup, and immediately took it out, carefully avoiding the rim along with a can of Coke. She kept it in her desk drawer, heart beating out of her chest. When investigators sent the cup for testing, they discovered that the DNA retrieved from it matched the DNA found on Mandy Stavick's body. This is going to be like the shortest casual criminal list over the longest period ever. It's just like, boom, guilty. Get him in the chair! This conclusively proved that Bass had been involved in the murder. Following the DNA match, detectives confronted Bass as he left work. Detective Kevin Bohe questioned him, asking if he had any relationship with Mandy. He initially denied any involvement, claiming that he'd never even kissed her. Bohe pressed, asking why his DNA was found on her body. His demeanor shifted from denial to confusion, questioning how they obtained his DNA. Uh-oh, wrong question. <laughs> Your answer should be, what? Not, how'd you get my DNA? <laughs> Shortly after this conversation, on December the 12th, 2017, which was 28 years after Mandy's death, police arrested the 50-year-old Bass in the bakery parking lot. He was charged with kidnapping, murder. As he was handcuffed, Detective Bohe informed him of his arrest for the murder of Mandy Stavick. Later that day, on her birthday, Sheriff Bill Elfo came knocking on Mary Stavick's door. Mary Stavick recalled, stating, He said, We've got him. That's all he said. We've got him. And I said, Who? I really never dreamed. I never dreamed it. The trial marked the beginning on the path of justice. Each year, as Elfo met with Mary at the same family home in their tight-knit community along Highway 9, he had briefed her on the progress the sheriff's office had made in the case. In an interview with the Birmingham Herald, Elfo explained, We would provide her updates just to let her know that we hadn't forgotten about her or her daughter. Now, after so many years, he proved that they had, indeed, remembered Mandy. To quote Elfo again, I think the highlight of my career, and it's been a long one, is being able to tell Mrs. Stavick that the case has finally been solved. People have traveled the world trying to solve the case. There's been lots 
of effort from a lot of different detectives. Generations of detectives have come and retired. This has been something our deputies have worked long and hard on. We're really proud of people that put work into the case, and we will hopefully have justice for Mandy and her family. Look, I don't want to put down what Elfo has done, but and like all of the commitment to this and stuff, but isn't the break in the case that these two women were just having a chat and was like, yeah, that Tim Bass is a dodgy dude, isn't he? Tim Bass's trial was scheduled for April the 8th, and he remained in Whatcom County Jail with his bail set at a million dollars. What? Bail? St- America, he murdered someone. <laughs> How about no bail for murderers? If convicted, he could face 20 years to life in prison. Whatcom County prosecuting attorney David McEachran, who had worked on the case from the beginning, mentioned that he would likely return as special prosecutor for the trial as he planned to retire at the end of the year. McEachran expressed his desire to see the case through to its conclusion, stating, I've worked on the case since 1989, and I would love to see it to the end. Trial and Aftermath for prosecutor Maggie Tran, the journey to justice has been a very long one. At the age of 44, when Mandy Stavick was murdered, is now 73, and to come out of retirement for this deeply personal case, insisting on not receiving any payments. Emotionally, he reflected, she was a good kid. It just shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened at all. Driven by his heart and his intellect, McEachran was determined to see this through. After three decades of heartache, fear, and frustration, the trial of Mandy's alleged killer finally commenced. The state's case appeared straightforward. To quote McEachran in his opening statement, The defendant's DNA was inside her. We know that she was kidnapped. She was and then she was killed. However, defense attorney Stephen Jackson presented a different narrative to the jurors, insisting that his client was innocent. Jackson even suggested a shocking theory, the possibility of consensual sex between Bass and Mandy Stavick in the hours leading up to her murder. He argued there was no signs of a struggle. Evidence of sexual contact is not evidence of During the interrogation after his arrest, Bass insisted, everything I've said is the truth. He described his relationship with Mandy as initially a friendship that gradually became more physical. Although they didn't engage in intimate activities frequently, it was mostly kissing and such. Stark Follis, one of Bass's defense attorneys, went on to suggest a scenario where Bass and Mandy met during a Thanksgiving break and had an intimate relationship. When asked about proof, especially considering that no one saw them together and there were no telephone calls between them, Follis responded, First of all, I don't have to prove it. The burden of proof is on the state of Washington, not on the defense. Yes. <laughs> it's weird that that would come up in court because... That is the perfect reply to that situation. I mean, f**k Bass, but like that is that is some good lawyering. This suggestion raised questions, since when Bass was first questioned in 2013, he claimed to barely remember who Mandy was. The prosecutor believed that Tim's evolving story was an attempt to cover himself, stating, because he's making it up. Stephen Jackson, one of Tim Bass's public defenders, filed a motion to suppress the DNA evidence in the case, arguing that it violated Bass's Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable search and seizure. Well, didn't they get around that by being, you know, having it voluntarily put forward by a member of the public? Right? They had that little loophole thing. Jackson contended that the co-worker who collected the cup had acted as an agent of the state, thus making the evidence inadmissible. To establish someone as an agent of the state, it needs to be shown that the person conducting the search intended to assist law enforcement efforts rather than pursue their own objectives, and the government was aware and approved of their actions. However, during a suppression hearing in late August, Judge Raquel Montoya-Lewis ruled against suppressing the DNA evidence. That's going to be the crux of it, isn't it? Because if they suppress that, they know he's guilty, and he walks free. But if they don't suppress it, he's entirely f because it's DNA. She determines that although Bass had a reasonable expectation of privacy at work, the co-worker was not acting as an agent of the state and therefore Bass's rights were not violated. Good. 
Judge Montoya Lewis explains that there was little evidence presented during the testimony at the suppression hearing suggesting that detectives had instructed the co-worker directly or indirectly to collect an item containing Bass's DNA. She noted that because the woman had initiated the idea on her own and expressed a sense of obligation to help, she was not acting as an agent of the state. As a result, the DNA evidence could be used during the trial. Subsequently, Stephen Jackson appealed Montoya Lewis's decision to the Court of Appeal. However, the Court of Appeals Commissioner Mary Neal denied the review of Montoya Lewis's decision to not suppress the evidence. Neal stated that Mr. Bass has not demonstrated that the court's conclusion is obvious error. Good. Testifying for the prosecution was Kim Wagner, the woman responsible for retrieving the DNA evidence that connected Bass to the crime scene. Despite feeling terrified, she knew she had one more task to complete. Oh, don't worry, Kim. He's going away to prison forever. Isn't he like 60-something or 50-something? He's gonna. He's he's dying in prison. Kim, while on the witness stand, expressed her desire to do the right thing for Mandy, stating, "If Tim was potentially involved in that crime, I wanted to do the right thing for Mandy." The defense aimed to use scientific evidence to support Bass's account and called upon Dr. Elizabeth Johnson, a forensic expert. She testified that the semen could have been deposited up to two days before Mandy's death, with the most consistent time frame being within hours to days, possibly up to 48 hours. In contrast, the prosecution's expert, the original medical examiner from 30 years ago, Dr. Gary Goldfogel, disagreed. He argued that various indicators suggested it occurred much sooner and that it was consistent with Mandy being and killed before being deposited in a river and then drowning. Following the expert testimonies, it was Gina Malone's turn to take the stand. As Bass's ex-wife, who divorced him after his arrest and the claims regarding his affair with Mandy, she described her nervousness and discomfort, stating, I was so nervous and I was shaking. I don't even want to see his face. During her testimony, Gina Malone revealed that she had witnessed Bass asking his mother to lie for him by implicating his own father. He had asked, can we say, dad did it? Despite his father having passed away more than a decade earlier, his mother's response to nobody's surprise was a resolute no. As Bass's trial continued, it became a nightmarish family reunion. His brother Tom also took the stand. Tom explains the emotional turmoil he experienced leading up to his testimony, saying, It was agonizing. As hard as it was, I knew I had to do it. Tom Bass recounted that during the investigation, his brother had confessed to sleeping with Mandy Stavick decades ago and then asked Tom to tell the police that he had also slept with her. Tim's motive appeared to be to make it seem like Mandy had multiple sexual partners. Tom struggled with how to respond to the request, saying, You believe me, right? I don't know what to say. Tom Bass went on to describe another damning incident that occurred after the arrest, adding to the mounting evidence against him. Tom Bass, while testifying, shared that Bass had expressed fear of going to prison, believing that everyone was lying and out to get him. He asked his mother to provide a strong alibi, suggesting they were Christmas shopping, and urged Tom to do what he could to help. However, defense attorney Shoshana Page offered an explanation for Tim's behavior, suggesting that even innocent individuals, when facing intense suspicion, might take actions that could be interpreted as those of a guilty person. Yeah, that's fair. Because if you're like, oh my god, they really think I'm guilty, I've got to get out of this, and then you make something up, it's like, that's reasonable, that's fine. As the nine-day trial came to a close, both sides made their final appeals to the jury. Defense attorney Stark Follis emphasized that assumptions should not be made solely based on appearances and a lack of witnesses. He argued that the investigation was flawed due to the assumption of sexual assault and that it may not have been the case. Prosecutor McEachran countered this by asserting that there was no evidence of consensual sex, no contact between individuals, and that Mandy was abducted and killed. He urged the jury to hold the man accountable. The trial hinged on that DNA evidence. And now the jury had to deliberate based on the information presented to them. Oh, come on. It's a lock-in, isn't it? One juror mentioned the possibility of a secret relationship, highlighting the complexity of the case. Yeah, but even his family's like, yeah, no, I can't stand up for him. No, he asked me about all this stuff and it's just like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> his own family. 
He's guilty. As the jury in the Mandy Stabber case deliberated, the passage of time felt excruciatingly slow. Reporters noted the weight of the situation, quote, 30 years of wandering, two weeks of trial, five hours of deliberations. Juror Marley Brighton expressed her fear and hype, urging her fellow jurors to do the right thing. Mandy Stavick, Mandy's mother, understood the gravity of the situation, knowing that the jury had to reach a unanimous decision. Oh, really? I guess, does it have to be 12 out of 12? I thought it was like 9 out of 12 or something. She prayed that they wouldn't face a hung jury, which would require starting the process all over again. While no one had testified to seeing Bass and Mandy together, juror Ed Beeman explains that they had approached their deliberations like investigators and attorneys. They meticulously examined the evidence, using posters and maps, and discussed every aspect of the case. Juror J. Van Mersbergen mentions that a portion of the jury was focused on whether there might be reasonable doubt. Ultimately, deliberations lasted a little over a day, signifying the gravity and complexity of the decision that they had to make. In the courtroom, the tension was palpable as the court clerk announced the verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Timothy Forrest Bass, guilty. Guilty of murder and kidnapping. Molly Brighton, one of the jurors, expressed the overwhelming relief that she felt. Reporter Peter Van Sant questioned Detective Ken Bohe about the emotional moments when he witnessed Mandy's family embracing and shedding tears. Bohe affirmed that at that moment, he thought, this is why we do what we do. Prosecutor McEachran acknowledged the incalculable harm caused by the crime and stated that the justice served couldn't make up for it, emphasizing that Bass should never be released. Six weeks later, during the sentencing phase, Mary and Molly Stavick were too emotional to speak, so Molly's husband, Mike Brighton, addressed the court on their behalf. He emphasized that the family could never fully heal and called for Bass never to be allowed to walk free. Then it was the Bass family's turn to speak. Tim's mother, Sandra Bass, insisted that her son never tried to blame his father for Mandy's death, countering earlier claims. The judge offered him the opportunity to speak. Newly convicted murderer Tim Bass spoke in court for the first time, asserting his innocence. I would first like to say that I'm 100% innocent of this crime. Furthermore, I don't believe I received a fair trial. In saying that, though, the better man in me says I should say very little today and give this day to the Stavick family. However, the judge remained unswayed and sentenced Bass to the maximum term, nearly 27 years. Bass couldn't receive a life sentence because prosecutors hadn't charged him with premeditated murder, as they were uncertain about their ability to, receive, to secure a conviction on that charge. The judge addressed Bass, noting the decades of living free from responsibility and the web of lies that ensnared his family and others. Despite Bass's claims of innocence, Gina Malone, his ex-wife, firmly believed in his guilt, stating, he's as guilty as hell. Oh my god. <laughs> this is like open and shut, isn't it? Way too late, but I mean guilty. For Mary Stavick, who has once doubted whether she'd ever see justice, Bass's sentence provides some closure, ensuring that he would spend enough years in jail to significantly impact his life if he were ever released. Tom Bass wondered if his brother had considered other killings possibly involving Heather Backstrom or Merrily Anderson. Both women reflected on their fortunate survival and the role they played in putting Bass behind bars. Kim Wagner credited the entire community for their relentless pursuit of justice. Detective Ken Bauhe, emotional but relieved, affirms that they'd indeed captured the right person, hoping that the family could heal and the community could feel safe and whole again. Bass will be eligible for parole in 24 years. He's currently serving his sentence at Clallam Bay Correction Center on the Olympic Peninsula. His tentative release date is at 2045. While Bass's legal team mentioned plans to appeal, there have been no further developments in this regard. Dismembered Appendices Tragically, Mandy was not the only child the Stavick family had lost. Her older brother Brent had been murdered in 1975 when the family still lived in Alaska, and her stepbrother Spencer died in a boating accident just a year before Mandy's death. Oh my god. Why do we have to end on that? That's so savage. Oh. And she was involved in numerous sports during high school. Mandy grew very close to Jim Bream and her coach, 
He became a father figure to the girl, encouraging her to push herself. He would go on to deliver a eulogy to a crowd of over a thousand. In honor of her memory, a scholarship fund was established in her name at the Mount Baker High School. Additionally, her sister Molly named her daughter after her. Wow. Well, that's super depressing. It's a rather short episode today. Short, justice eventually served. And thanks for being here. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.